0: We started off with rheumatoid arthritis. That was our original model, and we've parlayed it into a more universal understanding of all autoimmune disease. And so, with multiple sclerosis, we chose that because there is epidemiologic evidence that uh, implicates diet in multiple sclerosis. We think that in order for the immune system to lose the ability to recognize self and non-self, which is what autoimmune disease is, there has to be peripheral antigenic stimulation, meaning that there has to be antigens or proteins that come in constant contact with the immune system that we believe enter into the immune system from the gut. The gut normally is impervious to proteins. We normally break proteins down in our gut to their constituent amino acids. The proteins are broken into peptide fragments and peptides are broken into amino acid sequences. And so normally what we end up with are amino acid fragments that we absorb. And what we think is going on is we think that these these larger peptide fragments as well as amino acid sequences that may be 10 to 15 bases long can also get in. We think that this constant leaking of antigenic peptides and proteins from the gut into the circulation primes the immune system to do nasty things in certain genetically predisposed individuals. Normally these large size peptides and proteins simply would not be able to get through. And so we've hypothesized that there's one of three potential mechanisms whereby they can get through. Two of the mechanisms aren't unique to our group. Other people have suggested the same thing. One is what's called the paracellular pathway. And the paracellular pathway is whereby these peptide fragments are leaking through the cell-to-cell connections. gut cells are called enterocytes. These are called tight junctions. And so the dimensions of the tight junctions actually increase, allowing for a larger molecule to get through.
1: And that happens when there's more inflammation.
0: That's right. Tight junctions loosen up with inflammation. When the gut is chronically inflamed, people that have rheumatoid arthritis tend to have inflammations of their joints occur at the same time that the gut occurs. And We don't believe that this is serendipitous in nature. We believe that inflammations of the gut associated with inflammation of other tissue. The second mechanism is the transcellular pathway where these elements are going through the cell itself. We think that this pathway with active transport is probably the way that it's happening. We believe that there are receptors in the gut that are acting as Trojan horses that are allowing these molecules to get through
1: and this is the Human epidermal growth factor receptor.
0: That's right. This is an unusual receptor because the way the body works is that When we secrete hormones hormones bind to receptors at cells and that causes the cell to express genes and make proteins and do all kinds of things So the crazy thing about the gut is the inside of the gut that's exposed to the food and so forth is actually the outside of your body. And so the question comes up, why, from an evolutionary perspective, would we ever find a receptor that is facing luminally or towards the outside? It faces the lumen of the gut, which is the outside of the body. In theory, there shouldn't be any hormones there for it to bind to. turns out that in our saliva, we have the... Key to the lock. The receptor can be envisioned as a lock. The receptor itself is bound in what we call the glycocalyx of the gut, and the glycocalyx is kind of this wavy series of carbohydrate molecules that prevent anything from binding this receptor. What happens is when the gut becomes damaged, either through mechanical damage or through GI tract irritation or whatever that inflammation causes the glycocalyx to be shed and it allows the receptor to bind its normal ligand. The ligand is the word for a key. A ligand is like a key, a receptor is a lock. So it allows the key to bind the receptor and the body's endogenous key is epidermal growth factor and that's found in our own saliva. So when we swallow our own saliva, if the receptor has been exposed at the glycocalyx, then the hormone, epidermal growth factor, the key, can bind its receptor, epidermal growth factor receptor, and when it does that, it causes tissues to be healed inside the gut. So if you've ever noticed a dog licking its wound, there's method to the madness is that when you lick an open wound, the hormone, epidermal growth factor, in the saliva promotes healing, and we know that from from animal studies in which we've prevented animals from licking their wounds or if we've actually taken their on saliva in, and swabbed it onto the open wound. It heals faster when saliva is there. So we believe that's what's going on in the gut is that the epidermal growth factor receptor is there on an evolutionary basis to help us heal our own wounds. The luminal side of the intestine doesn't have a whole lot of receptors that we know about. We know the epidermal growth factor receptor, there's another receptor in the lower gut called the Thompson-Friedenreich receptor. But there's very few receptors per se in the gut. And the way the gut actually makes the immune system aware of the contents of the gut, the immune system needs to know that, is through what we call M-cells. M-cells are specialized cells that line Peyer's patches in the gut. Peyer's patches are kind of little bumps that are found in certain parts of the gut. And within those pyres patches are M-cells. And M-cells, their function is to sample tiny amounts of the bacteria and the pathogens and everything that's in the gut so we can tell the immune system what's going on. But the M-cells, we don't believe, are exploited by dietary antigens and most of the bacterial gut pathogens.
1: They're too little.
0: Right, they're, they're tightly controlled, too, the, the way that um, T and B cells operate in conjunction with these M cells, is the T and the M cells don't allow much antigenic material to bypass the gut. Or what we have is we have another part of our immune system called the gamma globulins. And the gamma globulins form complexes that prevent any of these proteins from doing any damage to our system. So, at least in theory, the M cells combined with the gamma globulin system prevent any of this from going on. So our hypothesis is the gut becomes damaged by certain dietary elements which strips the glycocalyx which exposes the epidermal growth factor receptor which allows these certain dietary elements along with these viral and bacterial peptides to get into the bloodstream. The epidermal growth factor receptor is what we call a very promiscuous receptor. Most receptors have one or two ligands, endogenous ligands, but the way this thing works is it's what's called a dimer. This dimer of a receptor has 10 or 12 endogenous ligands that it binds. So it binds this whole series of things and it has to do with the structure of the receptor. Because it binds so many endogenous ligands it has the potential for binding everything and that's the problem is that it has the potential to bind lots and lots of factors that at least in the western diet are very very common.
1: And so one problem is that the foods that you're implicating have an easy way, they tend to damage the glycocalyx, they tend to get through the, the through cooking, at stomach acids don't break them down enough. When they get into the gut, they're irritating.
0: That's right, and, and what we're talking about is dietary lectins, and uh, for instance, when you eat whole wheat, you eat a lectin called wheat agglutinin. And we know that wheat agglutinin, when it gets into the gut, it causes the glycocalyx to be stripped, which opens the door to bind the epidermal growth factor. And we know that WGA, wheat agglutinin indeed binds the epidermal growth factor. And how we know this is there are animal models where we take insulin and we bind insulin to WGA. And so we have a complex. We have an insulin WGA molecule and what happens is WGA, because it has an infinity for the epidermal growth factor receptor, binds that receptor and in rats it lowers the blood glucose. Now normally you can't get insulin into your system because it's a large molecule that's why we have to inject ourselves with insulin so when you bind it to WGA you can actually lower blood glucose but the problem is WGA is like superglue it doesn't just bind the receptor and go on its merry way anything and everything that's in the gut it will bind and so it is has a high affinity for bacterial cell wall proteins. And there's a bacterial cell wall protein called LPS, lipopolysaccharide. And we know that WGA binds lipopolysaccharide. In the gut, bacteria are just like proteins. They get busted up too. So when you eat meat, that gets broken down into its peptides and amino acids components in the same way as bacteria. So bacterial cell wall gets broken down. And if you have WGA in the gut, then it binds these bacterial cell wall proteins and it then binds the epidermal growth factor receptor acting like a Trojan horse and bringing WGA plus this energetic bacterial molecule into plasma.
1: I'm picturing it like a sticky lollipop stick and what it grabs to be the top of the lollipop is unfortunately quite often a bacteria.
0: That's right. So even if these bacterial peptides were to get past the gut, and even if they were to get into cells, cells have an enzyme called lysozyme. And lysozyme specifically acts on bacterial cell proteins to break them down. So even if you do get bacteria in your bloodstream, the lysozyme in the cells breaks it down and there's not a problem. However, WGA is resistant to this enzyme lysozyme. So WGA, when it's bound to the bacterial peptide, it's like putting a Superman invulnerable shield around itself. The peptide remains intact, and then it can be transported to any other cell in the body that expresses the epidermal growth factor.
1: And as it gets transported, it also carries along whatever is stuck to it.
0: That's right. It gets carried along whatever is stuck to it. And this is the universal mechanism. We started off using rheumatoid arthritis as the model. We now believe that this probably is a universal mechanism that acts in many types of autoimmune disease. Now, if you don't have a specific genetic makeup, this process won't work.
1: Or at least the risk of it is significantly lower. It's significantly,
0: significantly lower. significantly lower. So you have to have what we call an HLA haplotype. And this is a human leukocyte antigen haplotype.
1: You don't have to have that. It just increases your chances a lot. Right,
0: it increases the probability, and we haven't completely ironed all of this out. When I say we, science in general, we haven't ironed this whole thing out. We believe there are multiple HLA haplotypes that can combine with multiple dietary lectins, which can combine with multiple gut antigens to express a disease
1: and so what you're describing is some people happen to have the kind of dna that looks more like these trojan horses than other people so the immune system is more likely to get confused
0: well all dna does is code for a protein and one of the proteins that it codes for is the hla protein and what an hla molecule is it's just simply a a little molecule that spans the the cell membrane and it presents proteins from within the cell to circulating white blood cells or T lymphocytes. When the circulating T lymphocytes see a molecule that's foreign to the body's own self mounts an attack on not just the molecule that it sees here but any other place in the body where it encounters that foreign molecule it will mount an attack and that's how we get rid of infections and that's how our body recognizes foreign material. And what we believe is through a process of three-way molecular mimicry, the T lymphocytes become confused. And how they become confused is through a process, what we call monster molecules, these chimeric molecules, which you call the lectins attached to the bacterial cell walls, what we call those chimeric or monster molecules. And when they come in, they look a lot like the bacteria but they also look a little bit like the tissue that's being attacked and the T lymphocytes lose the ability to recognize themselves in a foreign bacteria because the confirmation of what it sees is so similar to a foreign molecule in itself. It's like you have somebody speaking English and somebody speaking Chinese and you have somebody in the middle that's doing the translation. And the guy in the middle is the HLA molecule. What the HLA molecule does is it sees this chimeric molecule. It's digested. And the HLA molecule then presents this monster molecule at its cell surface. And the shape of the HLA molecule is determined by our genes. Everybody has a slightly different HLA makeup. And so that's why we believe that people have a genetic susceptibility for autoimmune disease is because those people that see this little monster molecule, it's slightly changed by our middleman, our translator. So the HLA molecule slightly changes the conformation of this monster molecule, and when it does that, it totally confuses the immune system, and the immune system loses the ability to recognize self and non-self. So that's the underlying concept.
1: This sounds like Homeland Security going after terrorists.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know if that's an apt analogy, but uh, the immune system is, is the most complex part of our, our genetic makeup. The HLA system is a, what's called a polymorphic molecule, and there's more than 3,000 different versions of this. So it's a very, very complex system, and uh, it's designed that way. It's kind of a, a more apt analogy is uh, COPS and uh, uh, radar systems is that... Uh, cops are trying to catch speeders, and the companies that build radar detectors build a better radar detector, they build a better radar gun, and there's this one-upsmanship. And the same thing has happened over the course of, of hundreds of millions of years with the immune system, is that we have this one-upsmanship, and that's why this system is so polymorphic, is that there are so many multiple versions of this thing along the way.
1: Now you've described WGA as bad, 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 every step of the way. It- Cooking it doesn't stop it. Stomach acids don't stop it.
0: Lysozyme within cells don't stop it.
1: Yeah, it gets through the gut barrier, then lysozymes don't stop it. Not only that, but it's an adjuvant, or is it an adjuvant? Which does adjuvant. A, not only that, but it's an adjuvant. What is an adjuvant? Well,
0: when we were first trying to make vaccines, to prevent diseases like the polio vaccine that Jonas Salk won the Nobel Prize for back in the 40s or 50s or whenever it was. They tried to simply get the virus and make a weakened version of the virus, dry it out, whatever, and inject it into the body system. What they wanted to do was to build an immune response so that the T cells and the B cells and the rest of the the immune system would mount an attack on this weakened version of the polio virus. But the problem is the immune system was smart and the immune system says, eh, I'm not gonna it's like going fishing, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go for that because it just doesn't look like a problem. So what they have to do is they have to tack on what's called an adjuvant molecule. When the adjuvant molecules tack it onto the weakened virus or bacteria, that adjuvant serves like red pepper. It just totally inflames the immune system and now the immune system will make an immunologic response to that antigen and so WGA by itself also as do other dietary lectins act as adjuvants and so we believe then that this adjuvant response promotes autoimmunity in, in certain individuals.
1: And so the WGA, all on its own, increases inflammation and irritation inside the body. But when it's stuck to something like a bacteria that happens to look like one of the body's cellular components, then it makes the immune system even more likely to be fiercely attacking that kind of bacteria and also human cells that are reminded of that.
0: Well, you know, we don't have in vivo data because this is such a new concept we don't have in vivo data meaning that in humans does this actually happen within their body the best evidence that we have is what's called in vitro data and what we take our little petri dishes and we put in white blood cells and then we also put in wga and if we put wga into a petri dish with white blood cells the white blood cells which are called macrophages they elicit an inflammatory response inflammatory response occurs because they secrete localized hormones called cytokines. These are inflammatory cytokines. And so we know then if you you put WGA into a petri dish with white blood cells the inflammatory response is even greater than if you would put bacterial cell walls, this LPS protein I talked about. It's even greater, it's 30 to 40 percent greater than what would occur with bacteria. Now that's a good response. When a bacteria gets into your system you want an inflammatory response to get rid of it. When a dietary antigen gets into your system it's causing a low level of inflammation and that's not a good thing is to have chronic low-level inflammation.
1: All right. now some fans of Sally Fallon and Weston Price asked me to ask you what about fermenting grains? Does that flatten out the WGA lectins enough? that they don't cause a problem.
0: What we do know about fermentation is that the bacteria that are responsible for fermenting dairy foods and other foods, beans and so forth.
1: And how about wheat?
0: And even wheat. They reduce another anti-nutrient called phytate or phytic acid. The phytic acid content is reduced with fermentation. WGA fermentation has little or no effect upon the appearance of lectins. As a matter of fact, if you take dry kidney beans and boil them for two or three hours, there is still physiologically significant lectins after boiling for two or three hours. The only way that you can remove lectins because of their their molecular conformation, they are such sturdy molecules the way they're built that they're resistant to not only proteases that are found in these bacteria that cause fermentation, they are resistant to heat. The only way you can get rid of them is to pressure cook them, so if you pressure cook them for an hour or so, then you will degrade all the WGA, but frequently we eat our legumes and beans from the dried form, or we just soak them and then boil them, Uh, they are still significant sources of WGA. If you buy canned legumes, canned legumes, part of the process of preventing horrible bacterial contamination is to pressure cook them, and so most canned, foods are pressure cooked and uh, if you're eating beans you don't have to worry about it if they are canned, typically.
1: Well bread is cooked at a very high temperature. Not
0: even close. The WGA that's found in cooked bread or even like roasted peanuts is the same concentration as what you find in raw, uncooked.
1: And sourdough bread or the bread that was traditionally done in Switzerland where they left it out for a week before they cooked it so that it did ferment a great deal, that doesn't affect lectins?
0: The information that we have is that the fermentation process does not significantly reduce the lectin content of bread. Now what does do it is that the WGA that we find in bread is primarily found in the germ and the bran. So if you look at the concentration of WGA in whole wheat, it is significantly higher than what it is in white bread. So white bread, even though it's not necessarily a good food because of the high glycemic load, has a lower lectin content.
1: So white sourdough bread, white sourdough French bread might be okay for some people.
0: Well the concentration of WGA in white flour is about three to four milligrams per hundred grams whereas in whole wheat it is ten times that. It's an order of magnitude higher. But at physiologic levels, we're only talking nanogram concentrations in bloodstreams. So we know from tissue studies, these in vitro studies, is that cells respond at nanogram concentrations. And so those can easily, nanogram concentrations can easily be achieved by consuming four to seven milligrams per hundred grams.
1: Well, it sounds like if somebody actually has a sensitivity or vulnerability to this WGA it may be an all-or-nothing food for them.
0: Well, if you have celiac disease, we know that gliadin proteins have been implicated in, in celiac disease. How they specifically get through the gut is not completely clear, but those individuals can't have any wheat.
1: For some people with autoimmune diseases, your guess is it might be the same thing.
0: Well, that's right. In animal models, we can induce type 1 diabetes by simply feeding wheat. And so...
1: And not very much wheat?
0: Not, well, you know, you have to go back and look at the literature, but uh, in the animal models where it's been done, um, it's been done at at typically higher values in in which chow, wheat comprises 20 to 30 percent or more of the energy.
1: But once somebody's sensitized, once their immune system is hypervigilant for this protein, it may not take very much.
0: Right, memory cells become attuned or agitated to these peptides, so it doesn't take much.
1: You have been also looking at other foods besides wheat, that you say, watch out for these if you have an autoimmune disease. What's on the list?
0: Legumes, like kidney beans, contain a lectin called phytohemagglutinin PHA, and we think that people should definitely stay away from legumes. Soybeans, as well, contains a lectin, SBA, and animal models tell us that these legume lectins get across the gut very very easily just like wheat germ agglutinin. We are currently have conducted an experiment here at CSU where we fed wheat germ agglutinin to humans as well as peanut agglutinin to humans and we're in the process of measuring the blood concentrations of these lectins to see if it gets through. We're working with a group in Austria, Franz Gabor and we're working with a group at the University of California at Davis in their plant physiology laboratory that are measuring the lectin concentrations in the human plasma. So we hope to have this information shortly and this will represent the first human studies to show that these lectins get through and that's the very first step is to show definitively that in healthy normal people without gut disease which is what our subjects were that the consumption of these foods uh, we see the lectin appear in bloodstream and after that then hopefully in the ensuing years we'll be able to measure this inflammatory response that we see in vitro in tissue models we want to do it in vivo to show that if we give people a big dose of lectin from kidney beans or wheat germ that it causes a, an in vivo inflammatory response then the next step is to do what are called a uh, kind of an immune type way of looking at these complexes and so we can identify these these monster molecules, and to see if they are actually getting into the bloodstream as well.
1: How about dairy?
0: Dairy, it goes back to this whole notion of this receptor that is willing to bind just about anything, okay? This gut receptor, the epidermal growth factor receptor. The problem with dairy is that dairy doesn't contain lectins per se, so you would think that if this is how lectins are dragging these gut molecules through, dairy shouldn't be a problem. But dairy contains something else, and dairy contains the body's own endogenous ligand for the epidermal growth factor.
1: Now that means it sticks to things, a ligand sticks. A
0: ligand is a key, a receptor is a lock. So the ligand binds the receptor, it's like binding the lock, and opens the door. We think about milk as being a perfectly harmless white substance that's got a lot of calcium and a lot of healthy nutrients for us but it also contains a profile of many of the hormones that circulate in cow's blood because milk is essentially filtered blood. So most of the hormones that are in cow's blood are also found in cow's milk. Most of the hormones have very, very rapid half-lifes like any other hormones. So by the time the cow's milk is pasteurized and processed and three days later it appears on the grocery, most of the hormones are degraded. However, there's an exception to this and there's a very, very stubborn hormone called beta cellulin. Beta cellulin is the body's own endogenous ligand for the receptor. So remember we said that the epidermal growth factor receptor is very promiscuous. It has 10 different ligands. Well, one of the most powerful ligands for the receptor is beta cellulin It causes downstream signaling greater than epidermal growth factor itself. So When you drink cow's milk, even pasteurized, processed cow's milk, even cheese that goes through this entire process of degrading everything else, cheese contains beta cellulin. Three months later, there's very high concentrations of beta celluline in cheese. So when you drink milk, whether it's been pasteurized, processed, whether it's goat's milk, cow's milk, or anything, you're getting a big shot of beta cellulin. Beta celluline then has the capacity to bind the epidermal growth factor receptor. And beta cellulin also binds the casein fractions of milk. Not only does beta cellulin get in, these other peptide fragments that are found in the casein fragment, the whey side of of milk, they also get through as well.
1: It um, sticks to these big monster milk proteins and brings them through.
0: That's right, and then if you throw WGA into the mix you can get even potentially more of these monster molecules.
1: If somebody eats yogurt that's been drained of the whey does that get rid of all this nasty stuff in milk?
0: Well at least in theory it is. It depends Uh, one of my colleagues Pedro Bastos from Portugal is the man to talk to about that but apparently there are different ways in which the whey is separated from the rest of the the milk proteins, and the separation process has to do with whether or not beta saline ends up in there, and I don't know that we have any experiments to date that show what the beta saline content is of these various separation processes.
1: That might be another one where if somebody has an autoimmune disease, maybe no dairy products, not even strained yogurt.
0: You know, that's kind of the approach that we would take. It's a lot like elimination diet. These are the most likely candidates that cause this three-way molecular mimicry and peripheral antigenic stimulation in the gut. Our idea is that people with autoimmune disease, there's a variety of foods that they ought to eliminate initially and then carefully monitor their symptoms. Now with a disease like multiple sclerosis, it's a, basically there's different versions of it, but the most common version is relapsing, remitting, where people have these symptoms that come on and go off, come on and go off. At least to date, it seems somewhat serendipitous how it happens, although there's an association, once again, with inflammation. So when they get viral diseases or bacterial diseases, they seem to have a flare-up of their symptoms. So we believe, then, that these dietary antigens also potentially can cause flare-ups in uh, relapsing-remitting MS patients.
1: Let's go through the whole list of foods. Tomatoes. You don't like tomatoes either for people with an autoimmune disease. Why not?
0: Well, of the two known lectins that have been shown in human plasma, the first is peanuts. That was shown in 1998 by the group Rhodes' group in England. So we know that peanut lectin gets into plasma. We're replicating that study as we speak. The second lectin that we know gets into human plasma is tomato lectin. And tomato lectin in 1972 was shown when they, they labeled tomato juice with a radioactive isotopic tracer person drank tomato juice and half hour later the isotope was in their bloodstream so we know that tomato lectin also gets through but the thing about tomato lectin is that if you put it in these little petri dishes with white blood cells it doesn't cause an inflammatory response WGA PHA cause inflammatory response tomato lectin doesn't And we know from epidemiologic studies, people who eat tomatoes have reduced incidence of cancer and heart disease and so forth. So on paper, it looks like tomato ought to be a very, very healthy lectin. But once again, tomato lectin doesn't just nicely bind the receptor, shut the door and go in. Anything that's in the gut, just like WGA, can be drug through with tomato lectin. It's sticky. It's sticky. That's right. We believe that if tomato lectin binds specific antigens in the gut, then those antigens can gain access. And once again, we have this monster molecule formed by tomatoes. We don't have any direct evidence that any of these things cause autoimmune disease. We have circumstantial evidence. What we do have is a dietary trial going on right now in Ireland where people are going on diets that are wheat, grain, dairy, free, they're not tomato or or egg white free yet because we've just identified those, and they are having amelioration of symptoms. Now, this has not been published, and this is anecdotal at this point. We don't believe that this is a cure-all for everybody, but we think that in certain people, dependent upon how long they've had the disease, they can improve the symptoms. The longer they've had the disease, they may stabilize but the less likely it is they will ever regain function. If they have had the disease for a short period within one to three years there's a good chance that they can go into complete remission. Not all people but some people and many people can have an improvement of symptoms. So we're not trying to provide false hope in that we have a panacea for all MS patients. What we're saying is that we have a potential mechanism where a percentage of people can improve.
1: You went by egg whites pretty fast. What's wrong with egg whites?
0: Well, we talked about lysozyme, and we talked about in the body's own cells, it has these very, very powerful enzymes that binds bacteria and destroys them. Like, for instance, if you look at your conjunctiva, if you look at the tissues that line your eye, the eye is constantly exposed to bacteria in the air, and so we've got this open, as it were, reservoir that can potentially get infected every day of your life. But what happens is that the tears in your eye contain a very, very high concentration of lysozyme. And lysozyme busts up these gram-positive bacteria, as well as gram-negative bacteria, and it destroys them. The bacteria don't have any way to counter lysozyme. Lysozyme is something we build ourselves, and it shouldn't be problematic because we've got it in every cell of our body. But what happens with egg white is egg white contains very, very high concentrations of lysozyme. And guess what lysozyme binds? Lysozyme binds our promiscuous epidermal growth factor receptor. Now remember what lysozyme does is it attacks bacterial cell walls. And when we put high concentrations of lysozyme in our gut, it busts up these bacteria. When it busts them up it forms these fragments of lysozyme because lysozyme is resistance to the guts proteases, it forms these complexes of lysozyme plus bacteria because lysozyme can bind the epidermal growth factor receptor then lysozyme just like tomato lectin even though it's in vivo it doesn't do anything by itself when it's drawn through the gut it can potentially cause an immune reaction.
1: Okay, let me get this straight. So lysozyme doesn't stick to things. It just busts them up.
0: Well, that's a good point. A lectin agglutinates, one of the definitions, the older definition of an lectin is that it agglutinates red blood cells, okay? So lysozyme does not agglutinate human red blood cells, but lysozyme does stick to bacteria. When it sticks to bacteria, it forms a complex, the lysosome can bind that receptor, and then it can drag this stuff through.
1: Another monster molecule.
0: Potentially monster molecule. And so, you know, having spoken with multiple sclerosis patients who have come into remission on a wheat and a dairy-free type diet, a couple of them have told me that egg whites exacerbate their symptoms. I said eggs, not egg white, but that kind of was the stimulus for this thought. And then having gone through the biochemistry of lysozyme to see how it actually works, lysozyme in theory has the potential to act like a lectin and get into circulation. Now, none of this has been shown in humans as of yet, except for the tomato and the peanut agglutinin. We are replicating those studies as we speak.
1: And you're also showing in the laboratory the mechanisms for why these things might be a problem.
0: That's right. Well, we haven't gotten to the laboratory stage yet. We're still at the theoretical stage. Because the epidemiology studies point towards that. If you look at the epidemiology of milk drinking and multiple sclerosis, for the last 35 or 40 years, we know that there's a very good epidemiologic association. You drink more milk, it increases the risk for multiple sclerosis.
1: And go ahead and add some of the other autoimmune diseases that. You increase the risk for if you drink milk?
0: Well type 1 diabetes, with type 1 diabetes we not only have epi studies we also have animal studies just like those little rats that we fed them increased wheat diets and they had an increased incidence of type 1 diabetes the same thing is true. My colleague uh, Fraser Scott in Canada has shown that if you feed them more milk they also have an increased incidence of type 1 diabetes.
1: Do you sometimes think that if you look closely enough at any food you would find some nasty lectin or lysozyme or something that would bind with the epithelial growth factor receptor hormone and cause a monster molecule to get through. Is all food suspect?
0: Absolutely not. And the reason for it is because we need to look at the foods that were traditionally in the human diet. And milk was not ever traditionally in the human diet. Milk is a very recent newcomer. Milk has only been around for 6,000 years, and if a human generation is 30 years, we're looking at a very, very small time for milk to be in the human diet. The same way with wheat and whole grains. Even though we call them the staff of life and the staple of all civilizations, on an evolutionary time scale, they've only recently been domesticated and adopted. And the same thing with legumes. They were never traditionally a staple in the human diet.
1: And I suppose that eggs were only a seasonal food.
0: That's right. Eggs were seasonal food, as were all plant foods. All plant foods were seasonal. So even if you had the susceptibility haplotype and you started to get the disease, then the exposure was very, very short. Whereas in the modern world, we eat grains and legumes and dairy products almost every single day. So we are exposing ourselves on a daily basis. And so we believe then that these are diseases of civilization, these autoimmune diseases. Had they been present two and a half million years ago, natural selection would have weeded them out by now. And that's why they haven't been weeded out is because they have such short exposure to the human genomes. The human genome would normally, through negative selection, would get rid of these things because they're killing us at a younger and younger age, multiple sclerosis attacks young women in their primary reproductive years. Had that been going on for hundreds of thousands or millions of years, we would no longer have multiple sclerosis or we would have it at a very, very low percentage of the population.
1: You also implicate a deficiency in vitamin D.
0: Animal studies, human studies, epidemiologic studies also point to the role that uh, vitamin D, and vitamin D really isn't a vitamin, it's a hormone because it acts in every cell of the body. We also believe that it's a potent hormone that influence immune function. And we know once again from animal models, there's a, an animal model of, of multiple sclerosis, EAE, that can be prevented simply by dosing the animals on high levels of vitamin D before implication of the disease.
1: Here in Colorado, we don't get much sunshine compared to the tropics.
0: Well, here in Fort Collins, we get more days of sunshine than they do in San Diego. But what's important is the Height of the sun relative to the latitude because in the tropics you get direct sunlight, and the direct exposure of UV causes a greater synthesis of vitamin D. So, in terms of the blood concentrations of vitamin D, we are significantly lower here in Colorado than we would be in the tropics.
1: The foods that you're choosing to say are problems are ones that have been traditionally chosen also by naturopathic physicians by acupuncturists, by people who study those alternative fields, does that make sense to you?
0: You know, I think that um, people that are in the trenches making careful observations with naturopaths and some of these others, they see hundreds if not thousands or tens of thousands of patients and they have at least anecdotal evidence from their experience that there's something going on. But in support of these folks are part of the medical community that are concerned with allergies food allergies. If you look at the scientific peer review journals in the allergy field, the same picture is painted. Milk, wheat, corn, dairy, tomatoes, and so forth, the same foods that you've mentioned, often are the same foods that are allergenic. And we have, in the allergy community, IgG responses, which are considered more valid than an IgA response. So we have these IgG complexes to these food allergens. So I think that if you triangulate it and you look at the evolutionary perspective that we seem to be focusing in on these same types of foods and these are the foods that have been recently introduced into the human diet and even though they seem like staples and they seem like everybody eats them and there's no problems with it if you look at the incidence of celiac disease we know now that roughly 1 in 100 people have celiac disease in the United States we know that from blood bank studies. And so if we go into blood banks, we get a huge random sampling of blood, and we measure specific antibodies, we find one in 100. That's 3 million people in America shouldn't be eating wheat. 3 million, that's an enormous amount. And I suspect that we would see when we finally do, maybe not in my lifetime, I'm getting to be old here, I would suspect in maybe the next generation, we will see autoimmune disease unlocked. We will find out what the chain of environmental events and genetic events that cause it. This disease has been going on probably for at least 10,000 years, maybe longer. That disease knows exactly how it's doing it. Humans just haven't unraveled this complex disease.
1: get a little bored or frustrated by how much money goes into drug treatments for autoimmune diseases while this other area is somewhat overlooked.
0: We need novel thought. We need to think outside the box. People, when they look at autoimmune disease or any other disease, they look at an allopathic treatment. Cure the symptoms, don't cure the cause. And from a fundamental perspective to understand the disease process, we can perhaps build better drugs if that's an option, but perhaps it's better to use the system the way it was designed genetically. And that's my bias. If the system is genetically designed to operate under these conditions, maybe that's what we should be doing if it's practical, rather than continuing
1: to try to operate under conditions under which the genome wasn't selected.